BMI? Okay. Yeah. So, 46 year old male went approximately probably about 110 kilograms. Complaint of uh, subspinal chest pain. He's a uh, gardener, so not working pretty hard today in the heat. Described as a pressure. It is substernal, non-radiating, in on a 10 scale, and I couldn't get a good time out of him. Uh, no nausea and no vomit at this time. Um, I'm just giving real quick from the scene here in a couple of minutes. We've got yeah, that's fine. Have to, we've got established. Okay. We've given him, um, working on our second nitro. His BP dropped a little bit. We've come back up. So we're going to give her a second nitro. We have given aspirin. And we're drawing from morphine right now. Did you do it? 162. Hey, hey, everyone. This is Chris, the public safety guru. All right. This is the new podcast that I have been promising you. I have gone back and started re-recording previous lectures and tweaking them based upon your feedback. These lectures can now not only be used by my students, but can be used by any student in an EMT program across the United States, as we will be not only covering EMT in California, but also EMT National Registry information. If you're sitting there wondering, each state gets to have their own regulations? Yes, each state does, as well as some states like California have different regulations for the different counties in the state. So this is all stuff that EMTs kind of have to adjust for. Okay, so let's jump into this. This study guide is for block one exam. If you're in my EMT program, this will make sense. However, if you're in another EMT program, we're gonna be talking about legality and regulations regarding EMTs. So we'll be talking about duty to act, negligence, what kind of orders that, um, EMTs are under and those various different things. We will be also talking about some basic anatomy and physiology. Though we go into a deeper lecture later on in the program, this is the basis of those lectures. So if you can wrap your head around A and P at this level, this part of the lecture will definitely help you in later classes. And then we'll be having some terminology as far as some of the different terms you should know as an EMT. And then we have some miscellaneous stuff, such as talking about the formula for blood pressure and cardiac output. So hopefully all of this together will help you in your EMT program as well. All right, so I wanna jump right into consent. Informed consent can only be given by a mentally competent adult. Informed consent can only be given by a mentally competent adult. Informed consent can be revoked any time by the patient, either after being loaded in the ambulance, during transportation, or in the hospital. So what does this mean? This means if I am the patient and I give you consent to treat me and you are now transporting me and all of a sudden I change my mind, it is my legal right to stop treatment and get out of the ambulance. You cannot hold me against my will. If you do, it is kidnapping. So if you have a mentally competent adult patient who says, I am done, I don't want you to touch me, let me out of the ambulance, you better pull over and do so. Now you do document that and we do try to talk them into staying and going into the hospital, but if they refuse, they refuse. Now, despite your opinion, 
that the patient needs medical attention. You cannot force treatment or transport. Informed consent can also be called actual or express consent, dependent on where you work. So remember that. Informed consent can also be called actual or express consent. Now, implied consent. Implied consent is the consent in which an EMT would provide medical attention to the unconscious victim, believing that if that patient was able, they would give you their consent. So I'm working on a ladder and I fall off the roof and I'm unconscious. Well, if I was conscious, I would give you my consent. But since I'm unconscious and I'm not able to, you are going to imply that I would give you that consent. That allows you and protects you to treat me. So implied consent is when we believe that the person, our patient, would give us that consent if they were awake. Now there's always been questions in class when an EMT has to act, when an EMT has to be an EMT. Does being an EMT mean you're EMT 24-7? Well, the answer is no. An EMT has a duty to act and is legally obligated to provide care when the EMT is on duty. So, if you're getting paid to do your job, yes, you are obligated to provide medical attention. Duty to act. If you're a volunteer and you're in that capacity as an EMT, then yes, you still have a duty to act. So getting paid is not a requirement for duty to act. If you're working in the capacity of an EMT, duty to act requires you to provide care. Now, in California, we have EMTs and paramedics, and then we have different types of orders that both certifications work under. So paramedic EMT standing orders are, excuse me, EMT standing orders are considered offline since the EMT, unlike paramedics, does not need to call a base hospital to administer medications. So remember that EMTs, your orders are considered offline. A paramedics is online because I have to call a hospital and talk to a nurse to get further orders. So EMTs offline. Now, let's just decide, let's just say that someone's going to accuse you of negligence. Well, they have to prove certain things regarding negligence and if you committed those acts. So there are some components to negligence. Let's talk about those four components. The components of negligence are duty to act, breach of duty, injuries or damages, and causation. You have to have all four of those to be negligent, to be found negligent. You could be accused, anyone could be accused of anything, but to be found guilty of negligence, once again, there has to be a breach of duty to act, injuries or damages, and causation, as well as did you have a duty to act. Since we're on this topic of duty to act and negligence, let's talk about confidentiality. Our patient's information is confidential. So everything that you record, paper or on digital, which we call PCR, is considered confidential. Remember that. Now, we are allowed to give some information to law enforcement, but it's very limited. The only person that has a right to the information that you have jot it down on your paperwork is the nurse and doctor that will be receiving your patient. 
So the gist of this is patient information is confidential. Now I realize we're kind of jumping around, but that's just because this test is encompassing, encompassing the first few lectures of your program. Now, each state has a continuing education requirement for medical personnel. Each state does. It is the responsibility of the medical professional, you, for your own education. Nobody is going to tell you, hey, Mr. EMT, it's time for your 48 hours of CE. No one's going to do that. So it's your responsibility for your education. Now, NREMT sets the national standard for testing of all EMTs. National Registry, NREMT, sets the standard for testing of all EMTs. That's what they do. So they're saying this is what the standard's going to be for the entire United States. Now, for those of us in California, pre-hospital emergency care regulations and standards are set by the State Office of EMS. Let's say that one more time. Pre-hospital emergency care regulations and standards are set by the state, ho state office of EMS. Now, I'd like to actually jump back to negligence because we talked about what are the four components to prove negligence. But what is negligence? What does it actually consist of? Well, negligence is when the medical professional fails to perform any necessary treatment or technique or performs any skills in a careless, unskilled manner. So in other words, you know you need to do something for your patient, but maybe there's just you don't like your patient and you decide that you're not going to do something or you're going to withhold some treatment. You would be guilty of negligence. An EMT cannot transfer, transfer a patient until they have given a report to the physician or nurse accepting responsibility for the patient. So remember that. I told a story in class that I brought a patient into the emergency room one day and the nurse asked me what I had. So I gave report to her. Well, she never came back. And I was like, where are you at? So I went looking for her and I said, hey, are you going to, you know, take care of the patient? And she looks at me and says, no, I was just being noisy, uh, nosy to what you brought in. I was, if had I left my patient on their gurney and left the hospital, I would have been uh, guilty of abandonment because I abandoned my patient. I did not ensure that the continuing medical care of that patient uh, was transferred to the hospital. So ensure that when that nurse comes to talk to you, that doctor comes to talk to you, you ask them, are you accepting care for this patient? And if the answer is no, we need to find a nurse that is going to accept care. But remember that the transport is not over until we give report to the nurse or doctor who is going to be accepting that patient. Now last, the Department of Transportation, DOT, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, set the guidelines for EMT training in the United States. So who sets testing? NREMT. Who sets guidelines for EMT? DOT and the Highway National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Now when it comes to state regulations, the state office of EMS does that for, the, for us. So you need to wrap your head around that. We have three different government agencies that are putting regulations on the EMT. To, so to simplify that, let's 
wrap our head around this, ladies and gentlemen, so we don't get it wrong during testing. So, to break this down, EMT testing regulations are set by NREMT. What we are able to do in the United States as far as our skills, that is regulated by the Department of Transportation and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And then locally, in our own individual states, especially in the state of California, the State Office of EMS sets state regulations. So if you remember that, you should do well on the test. Here's going to be a good place for us to take a break. Okay, we're now going to move into anatomy and physiology. So let's keep going with this. The first thing I want to jump into is homeostasis. What is homeostasis? Well, homeostasis is that state of being that the human body wants to be in. Our body wants to feel good. It doesn't want to feel stressed. So our body is constantly trying to get us into this homeostasis. This is the body's normal. When you're sick, your body is not in homeostasis, so your body's trying to do things to get back to that normal state. Thus, it's fighting the infection, doing various different things for us to allow us to get back into homeostasis. Now, there is nothing anyone can do to put our body back in homeostasis. So you need to wrap your head around that. Only the body can put the body back in homeostasis. So if you're asked a question on your block exam, on your quizzes, on national registry, what is homeostasis or what is not homeostasis? If it was not, you need to pick a thing that is external. What is someone doing to you or doing to the patient? Because a fever is homeostasis. Your body is raising its own temperature to fight infection. But someone giving you Tylenol for that fever is not homeostasis as that's something external being introduced into your body. All right, the spinal cord. You need to know how many vertebrae there are in each part of the spine. So the cervical spine, seven vertebrae. Thoracic, 12. Lumbar, five. Sacral, five. And coccyx, four. Now, a good way to remember this is this. Starting from the top, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, coccyx. We have breakfast at 7, lunch at 12, dinner at 5, and then you just have to remember that sacral is 5 and coccyx is 4. That's the best way I could tell you to remember. There are two types of nerves in the human body. These nerves are cranial and spinal nerves. These two nerves make up the peripheral nervous system. So remember that. Cranial and spinal nerves make up the peripheral nervous system. As an EMT, you should know what happens to the diaphragm during inhalation and exhalation. An example, when the diaphragm and intercostal muscles relax and the thoracic cavity decreases inside, this causes exhalation. And then the opposite would be true of all those during inhalation. Now, for metabolism, our body only needs two things to live. It needs oxygen and glucose. Remember that. We only need oxygen and glucose to live. When our patients 
are hypoxic and cyanosis starts kicking in, one of the best places or early indicators where we could find cyanosis is in the lips and fingertips. So remember that. Initial onset of cyanosis is in the lips and fingertips. However, also remember this, that we all go pale before we become cyanotic. Now, pale, uh, as far as how long it lasts, that's going to be different for each person based upon what is happening with them. But we all start pale and we become cyanotic. And if you're looking for that cyanosis, look in the lips and fingertips. How's everyone doing out there? We doing okay? Yes, this is a lot of information, but remember, this information is your foundational information. We're going to build upon this. All right, bleeding. What is in the blood that allows our blood to clot? Well, it's platelets. Because remember, our blood has red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, which are for blood clots, and plasma. Let's take a little quiz right now. What is the body part that prevents food from entering the trachea? What is it? Think hard. All right, I'm going to tell you. It's the epiglottis. The epiglottis prevents food from entering the trachea. On that note, what nerve controls the diaphragm? What nerve controls the diaphragm? Well, that would be the phrenic nerve. P-H-R-E-N-I-C. As you are listening to this study guide podcast, I want you to remember that all of this information is can also be found in the associated podcasts of those lectures. All right. The protective lining of the cranial cavity is the meninges. The meninges protect the brain. Now, the meninges are broken up into three different uh, parts. You have the dura mater, which is on top. So I always think of dura being strong. Then you have arachnoid, which is that middle layer. And then we have pia. One of the best ways I tell my students to remember this is dura is on top because it's the strongest. It's the one that's closest to the surface of the body. And then pia is that, it doesn't matter, like, right? So that's why pia. So if you can remember dura, arachnoid, and pia, you'll remember the three processes that make up the meninges. Now, when we have a patient who is suffering from rapid blood loss, I always tell my patients this. There is a compensatory mechanism that protects us, and that is your body putting your heart rate into tachycardia. So imagine this. I'm a police officer, which I am, and I get shot. Well, my body doesn't know the amount of damage that has been done to it, but it's sensing blood loss. So to maintain my blood pressure, my body will cause my heart to start uh, beating faster, tachycardia. This is considered the first compensatory mechanism of shock. Once my body starts figuring out what's going on, other things will start happening, but that first initial reaction will be tachycardia. How many of you out there have ever worked out? And then the next day, you're completely sore. Well, you're sore because you built up lactic acid. That's why you're sore. And how long did you stay sore? Well, it all depended on how hard you worked out. For some people, it was 24 hours. Other people have lingered on for two, three, even four days. So remember that. Is that what is this associated with? Well, this is associated with aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. Right now, our bodies are in aerobic metabolism. It's what we do every day. 
Now, what we do every day in our bodies produces waste. That waste is considered carbonic acid. Now, if you just went to work, you sat at your desk and you did your job, um, you're going to produce carbonic acid, but you don't feel it. And the reason why you don't feel it is because the body is able to get rid of it easily. It's just the way we are naturally built and the way our body works. That's aerobic metabolism. It's what we do every day. I'm trying to emphasize this for a reason. So the waste is carbonic acid and it's easily, the body is easily able to get rid of it. Now when we work out, we're trying to put our body into that anaerobic metabolism, right? We want our body to burn fat, so to burn fat it needs to be anaerobic. But the byproduct is lactic acid. And based upon your own experiences, you know that it's hard for the lactic acid to leave your body. So remember that. The best way I tell my students is that aerobic metabolism produces carbonic acid that easily leaves the body. Anaerobic metabolism produces lactic acid that takes longer for it to leave the body. Let's go back to those cranial and spinal nerves. You as an EMT need to know two cranial nerves. The first one is the 10th cranial nerve, otherwise known as the vagus nerve. Now this nerve is responsible for slowing down the heart. If you want to do an exercise, stand up in your seat right now and make sure you have a chair behind you and get your thumb and put it in your mouth. Tightly seal your lips around your thumb and blow as hard as you can for 10 seconds. Stop and see how you feel. If you kind of feel that slight dizziness, you have just put pressure on your 10th cranial nerve, slowing your heart rate down. But because you're healthy, you recovered quite fast. But we use this technique, which is called a Valsalva technique, to slow people's heart rates down. Now the other cranial nerve is the third cranial nerve, and this is the nerve that is responsible for pupil dilation. If you go to the publicsafetyguru.com, one of the things that's available to you is how blood flows through the heart. It's an actual chart. It's the best, I should say, diagram that I like students to have, and you should be able to essentially trace a drop of blood going through the entire circulatory system. And this diagram I have is definitely um, the best one for you. I only stole it. I didn't make it. I stole it. What I like about this diagram is that if you look at the heart and you ask yourself, if the left side of the heart fails, where is the blood going to back up to? That would be the lungs. And that condition would be known as congestive heart failure. And then if the right side of the heart fails, that blood's going to back up into the peripheral, causing us to have pedal edema or sacral edemia. That way, this way, this diagram gives you an idea what would happen if a certain area of the circulatory system failed. With that, though, you as an EMT should know where blood is pumped to from the ventricles. So where does the blood go to from the left ventricle? Where does the blood go to from the right ventricle? These are things that an EMT should know. The reason why is a prime example is the aorta gets its blood from the left ventricle. It's very important that we understand that. To keep talking about the circulatory system, which the heart is part of, 
we in class talked about the various different pacemakers of the heart. Now, if your heart is healthy, your heart rate is being set from the sinoatrial node, the SA node. And because our body is a wonderful system, it has backups. So there are multiple backups, but for the EMT learning, our primary pacemaker is the SA node. If that fails, the AV takes over, and if that fails, the Bikinji fibers take over. But just remember, if your heart is healthy, the primary pacer, pacemaker is the SA node. We are almost coming down to the end of the AMP review portion of this. All right, what kind of breathers are we? Well, we're carbon dioxide breathers. Our body breathes based upon the levels of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream. And this is sensed by chemoreceptors in the brain. I think for the longest time, we all thought we breathe based upon oxygen levels. Well, no, that's actually a backup system. Remember this, we are carbon dioxide breathers. Those chemoreceptors or those receptors that sense how much carbon dioxide we have in our body are in the brain. Now the backup system, lung breathers, those are in the actual lungs. And there are people who breathe based upon the oxygen levels. That's a condition known as COPD. My mom has COPD. The reason why she has COPD is she wanted to smoke for 20 years of her life. So her carbon dioxide chemoreceptors were knocked offline and her O2 ones took over. Just kind of like the heart that has backups, well, our breathing has backups. How does air enter our lungs? Well, our air enters our lungs through our oral airways, the mouth and nose. And then it passes the pharynx, then the trachea, and goes into the bronchi. Then obviously that goes into the bronchioles and eventually in the alveoli. You should be able to trace how air goes in from the mouth all the way down to the smallest unit in the lungs, which is the alveoli. If you're on a rescue call and you're conducting that primary assessment and you're checking a patient's level of consciousness, and let's just say you ask them their name. Hey, sir, what is your name? Oh, it's Chris. How old are you? Uh, I'm 51. Um, do you know where you're at right now? Mm, no, I don't. Or they give you a response that is contrary to where you're actually at. Your patient would have an altered level of consciousness. Whenever we have a patient that has an altered level of consciousness, we want to think that something's going on neurologically. ALOC, altered level of consciousness, is the earliest sign of a neurological dysfunction. It should cause you to pause and ask yourself, what is going on? Now, under normal conditions, ALOC is usually a sign of hypoxia, and we can fix that, right, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, we have that little gas called oxygen. There are some other things that we need to check, but this is where we're kind of going in line. You see how things are building upon themselves? Now, since we're talking about the brain and ALOC being the earliest sign of neurological dysfunction, let's talk about what the brain stem does. Because the brain's broken up into three components, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the brain stem. I'm more concerned about the brain stem. And the reason why is the brain stem is considered the center of life. No brain stem, no life. So the brain stem controls heart rate, breathing, 
consciousness and arousal. Remember, all those zombie movies and series that are out on TV and our heroes are stabbing zombies in the brains and shooting them in the brains? Well, that's why. They're trying to take out the brainstem. Um, it's a little zombie lore. I'm actually a zombie fan, so that's why I know that. Anyways, so the brainstem is important. All right, here's a good place for us to take our next break before we jump into terminology and some miscellaneous concepts. If it is your goal to have a career in health, one of the best things you could do, especially at this level of your education, is learn terminologies. In the back of your EMT book are probably dozens upon dozens. I haven't looked lately, but when I went to paramedic school, I had to memorize a couple of hundred terms. This is something you should be doing now. You should get a 3 by 5 card, put one term, one definition on there, and just start memorizing this and have family quiz you from time to time. This is something that you want to keep going even after you're out of EMT school. We want to keep that knowledge going. So let's talk about abduction and adduction. Well, movement away from the body is abduction and movement towards the body is adduction. Think about adding something to the body. That would be adduction. And of course, the opposite would be abduction. Now let's talk proximal versus distal. Proximal is nearer the point of attachment. Distal is away from the point of attachment. You need to think distal pulses. The radial pulse is a distal pulse. If you had a fracture on your forearm near the wrist, this would be a distal forearm fracture. If the fracture was near the elbow, this would be a proximal forearm fracture. Now, we do use the words superior and inferior as well. I mean, if you notice proximal and distal, could we not use inferior and superior? Um, sometimes some terms are interchangeable. But anyways, inferior is the topographical term that we would use to describe the body nearer to the feet. Let me say that one more time. Inferior is that topographical term used to describe the body, the part of the body nearer to the feet. I know that sounded like a lot of gibberish right now, but I would tell you, hey, you may want to rewind if that's what you people do during podcasting. I don't know if that's what it's called. But anyways, go back, listen to it again. Uh, one last thing on terms. I'm just going to throw it out there. You should, need, you should know what tachypnea is, tachycardia, bradycardia, bradynipnea. These are terms that you should know because they're only going to help you later on in your program. All right, let's talk about some miscellaneous jumble jumble. When I started in EMS, believe it or not, we didn't wear gloves or goggles. We would actually call you a wuss if you put on gloves. And I know everything has changed now, blah, 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 blah. Okay, but if you're my student, or actually if you're any EMT student, let's talk about this. BSI. Body Substance Isolation. It is the most important thing that you can do as an EMT. In fact, it is the first thing we always do. Whenever we get a call, we're on a call for service, the first, very first, 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 first thing we do is BSI. We protect ourselves first. Now, BSI consists of putting on your gloves, putting on your goggles, and if need be, wear a mask and a gown. 
Now, there are EMTs that wear prescription glasses, I being one of them. But you need to remember this. Prescription sunglasses do not protect your eyes. Yes, they provide you some protection, but not a lot. And the reason why is that we don't have that side covering that protective goggles have. So I would tell you, if you're an EMT and you wear glasses, you need to get goggles that go over your prescription glasses because prescription glasses offer little to no protection, especially because of the side. When you have your cardiology lecture, we're going to be talking about myocardial infarctions, heart attacks. And one of the components to this is the patient's state of mind. Most patients, especially males, will go into denial. I'm not having chest pain or I'm having chest pain, but it's not because of my heart. It's because I had spicy food last night. That's denial. Well, denial also takes place when people die. Denial is that stage of death where the patient or the family refuse to accept what is happening. It's like, he's going to be okay. She's going to be okay when we know otherwise. So just remember that denial is, a, is in the stage of death when family or the patient refuses to accept what is happening. I should have mentioned this when I was talking about BSI, but one of the main reasons why we wear a mask is because of airborne diseases such as tuberculosis. There was actually a time a few years ago that we had a tuberculosis TB outbreak. Um, it was mostly found in our lower economy um, neighborhoods, but TB can be found in jails, in prisons, um, and it flourishes in those damp, wet places. I know damp, wet, probably the same term, right? So with that, remember... Tuberculosis is a dis disease that is spread through airborne transmission. So if you have that patient that has that cough and maybe you see a little bit of blood in that cough, you better slap that mask on yourself. I'm not a big fan of not wearing a mask when my patients are coughing. If my patients are coughing, I'm always thinking TB. I'm also even thinking flu. So put on a mask. Both your state curriculum and national registry want you as the EMT to know how we figure out blood pressure. Well, the formula for blood pressure is peripheral vascular resistance times cardiac output or BP equals PVR times cardiac output. You just need to memorize what the formula of blood pressure is. Peripheral vascular resistance times cardiac output equals blood pressure. Okay, just memorize it three by five card. The last thing, we've all seen that picture of the person standing straight up and down with their palms facing outward. That is considered a standard medical atomical position. The reason why it's important is because the patient's right is right. The patient's left is left. We don't use our right or left. We use the patient's right or left. This is the position we refer to on all our medical documentation. So the standard medical atomical position is the patient standing, facing forward with palms outward. When we have two of the same bones that break, an example, maybe the patient breaks both femurs from a motorcycle accident. We would say that the patient has a bilateral femur fracture. This is telling the nurses and the doctors that both of the patient's femurs have been fractured. Let's add some law enforcement components to this. All right, if you respond to a call and it becomes dangerous, it is your job to back out and call law enforcement. Let the police do their job. Now on that note, 
Let's say you're on a call and you have a little kid who fell off their bike that requires medical attention. Well, there's a few things you can do because implied consent would kick in here. Implied consent allows you to treat the patient. However, let's just say that law enforcement says, hey, the parents are going to be here in about 15 minutes, but the patient is critical. What do you do? Let me tell you right now, you don't wait 15 minutes. You transport that patient right now. Because you know what 15 minutes becomes? 15 minutes becomes 20 minutes, 20 minutes becomes 25 minutes, and the patient should not be waiting. So remember that. We get going. Law enforcement can let the family know where their son or daughter's at, but we treat the patient. We err on side of the patient. If you're in my class, you've heard several war stories. And yes, they are all true. I'm not embellishing. But the one thing I can tell you is that this occupation is very stressful. Every year we're hearing about public safety professionals committing suicide. This stress is why there needs to be critical incident stress debriefing. It reduces anxiety and stress from the EMS world. Hopefully you'll work for an employer that has some type of program that allows you to de-stress. But it is important that we do critical incident debriefing so we can talk about what just happened. Okay, before I sign off, I'm going to give you the Chris Cano algorithm to test taking. Now, if I don't know if this will work in your program, but it works in my program. And if you think about it, it should work in your program because we should all be doing the same thing. So here it goes. When you take emergency medical test, you must remember there are steps an EMT must take, which first ensures the EMT's personal safety. Once an EMT has taken steps to ensure they are safe, the EMT will conduct a size up utilizing the penman approach. Once this is completed, the EMT will conduct a general impression of the patient and perform the primary assessment slash ABCs. We first fix A before we go to B. We then fix B before we go to C. We fix C before we get to play with our toys. At this point, the EMT will conduct the secondary assessment based on the patient's need. So when you're reading a test question, you must first look for any answers which have BSI. If there's no answer with BSI, then move on to scene survey. If there's no answer with scene survey, then look for general impression. If there's no general impression, then look for an answer involving airway. If there's no answer with airway, then look for an answer involving breathing. If there's no answer involving breathing, look for circulation. If there's no answer with circulation as a choice, then we get to play. Recap. 1. BSI. 2. Scene survey. 3. General impression. 4. Fix A. 5. Fix B. 6. Fix C. And if none of those are choices, 7. We get to play with our toys. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Just in case if you're listening and you're wondering, what is that like grunting sound in the background? <laughs> it's like that one right there. Well, my dog decided to join me and sat down and unfortunately, he is a snorer. Um, yeah, he keeps me up sometimes because he just has that little snout and he snores away. I didn't want to shoo him away because... Uh, after I finish this podcast, I'm going to be going to work and I'm not going to see him for 12 hours and he's my little buddy. But anyways, I hope you appreciate this study guide. If you have any feedback, please leave it in the comment section. Um, also, too, if you enjoyed it, let's get, let's get some ratings here, ladies and gentlemen. And, oh my gosh, he's like going crazy right now. 
Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Just in case if you're listening and you're wondering, what is that like grunting sound in the background? <laughs> like that one right there? Well, my dog decided to join me and sat down, and unfortunately, he is a snorer. Um, yeah, he keeps me up sometimes because he just has that little snout, and he snores away. I didn't want to shoo him away because uh, after I finish this podcast, I'm going to be going to work, and I'm not going to see him for 12 hours, and he's my little buddy. But anyways, I hope you appreciate this study guide. If you have any feedback, please leave it in the comment section. Um, also, too, if you enjoyed it, let's get let's get some ratings here, ladies and gentlemen. And, oh my gosh, he's like going crazy right now. If you're new or returning to the Public Safety Guru podcast, here's a couple of things. Number one, you could find me at two different locations besides on your favorite podcast app. First, you could find me at podbean.com. P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Look for the Public Safety Guru and my EMT lectures. If you register there and you follow, you'll get instant notification when I drop a new podcast. Now, what's neat about Podbean is it's given me a page where I'm able to upload all of my podcasts where you could sift through them if you're looking for a particular lecture, as well as Anchor FM has given me the same ability. So if you follow me there as well, you'll get instant notification of new podcasts as well as a page where you can look for previous lectures. But regardless of what you're using, please leave me feedback, likes, dislikes, whatever it may be. And if you have the opportunity to leave me comments, leave me comments on something that you may be looking for that I can help you with. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I've taken enough of your time. I hope you enjoyed the study guide. I hope it works for you no matter what program you're in. And good luck to you. Remember, not everyone can be an EMT, but anyone can be a firefighter. All right, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, signing off. Have a good day. Bye-bye.